Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Telemedicine burst onto the scene as the nation locked down at the start of the COVID-19 epidemic. Now, historically, telehealth or telemedicine were tightly restricted, both by regulation and by payment policy. But in response to COVID's disruption of in-person care, all 50 states in Washington, D.C. issued temporary waivers that allowed clinicians to administer telehealth care to patients who live in a different state than their provider, what we call interstate telehealth. How interstate telehealth use changed in the face of COVID-19 is the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Juan Andino, Chief Urology Resident at Michigan Medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Andino and colleagues published a paper in the June 2022 issue of Health Affairs assessing the effect of waivers on interstate telehealth utilization among Medicare beneficiaries during the COVID-19 pandemic. They found that while the volume of interstate telehealth use increased in 2020, out-of-state telehealth use continued to make up only a small share of all outpatient visits and all telehealth visits. They also found some interesting patterns on how interstate telehealth use changed, and we'll discuss that during the episode. Dr. Andino, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Alan, for having me, and I'm really excited that I get to share our work with everybody. Yes, I'm looking forward to talking through this issue with you. I think a lot of us were introduced, at least at the practice level, as patients to telehealth during COVID-19. Maybe we'd used it once or twice, but probably not thought a lot about it. Um, But that all changed in COVID when we couldn't go to the doctor's office. We weren't supposed to leave the house. And uh, from the perspective of your paper, we should probably start with sort of the regulatory payment regime. So telehealth was relatively limited prior to covid Use went way up. What happened with respect to regulation uh, as the public health emergency came into place? Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think really the key place to start here and what triggered a lot of research in this space. Prior to COVID-19, particularly for Medicare patients, which is what our paper is focusing on, uh, the restrictions for telehealth use um, were very limited. And so essentially, patients had to meet a criteria for what is called, and pardon me for using some technical language, but the originating site requirement of CMS. This essentially meant that patients couldn't do telehealth from home or for work. They really had to be in one of these predefined locations, common ones being hospitals, rural health clinics, or sometimes even federally qualified health centers. But it wasn't only the physical location that mattered. Patients also had to live in a rural area as defined by the Census Bureau data or a health professional shortage area. So you could see how as these things stack up, um, only a few folks are really going to meet those criteria to be able to engage in telehealth. Um, Also, these visits had to be video. It had to be live video. It couldn't just be a phone conversation. Um, And patients needed to have a prior established relationship with a provider to conduct a visit using telehealth. In March of 2020, this all changed. Um, Exactly as you mentioned, COVID came onto the scene. There were concerns about the spread, and so folks were being encouraged to stay home, avoid anything that didn't involve emergency care. And to promote that, uh, uh, waivers were put in place to remove some of these restrictions. So for the first time, 
patients, particularly Medicare patients, could engage in telehealth from their home, from work, just anywhere they had a good internet connection. Uh, and also these limits on only having rural patients engage in telehealth were also removed. And one of the other key aspects um, that we look into a little bit more in this paper, but is new patient evaluations. Prior to the pandemic, as I mentioned, uh, really patients had to have an established provider that they were following up with. This idea of having a new issue or new clinical scenario being looked into through telehealth um, was not really feasible. So you've really nicely described this massive change in who could get telehealth care. Um, Now let's add the interstate angle, because what you just described are policies that could apply to a physician down the street or across town. But there are unique limitations and unique changes with respect to interstate telehealth. So can you help me understand those changes beyond the general changes around telehealth? Yes, absolutely. And, I, and I, I'll be honest, I, I will oversimplify a little bit because this stuff is incredibly complex. But prior to the pandemic, CMS did require that a clinician be licensed in the state that the patient is physically located. So it was really focused on patient location as opposed to where the physician is practicing. Also, as part of the public health emergency declaration, CMS allowed individual states to waive uh, interstate license requirements so that if patients needed to seek care across state lines to try to encourage folks to stay at home, um, this requirement was waived temporarily. As you mentioned in the introduction, initially all 50 states and Washington, D.C. issued emergency orders that allowed out-of-state physicians, clinicians, providers to perform telehealth across state lines. But over time, this has continued to change as emergency declarations have faded away at the state level temporary licensure waivers have expired. And so as of April of 2022, for example, only nine states continue to have waivers allowing out-of-state providers to offer telehealth services. And several states, um, ranging from Arizona to Michigan, uh, I believe about 15 total have either enacted or introduced legislation to allow out-of-state practitioners to offer telehealth services. So we really thought that trying to bring this data together was important to help guide some of these conversations because until this paper, there really wasn't any uh, data on how interstate telehealth was being used. Yeah, so the licensure provisions here, as you say, you simplified, but it's a very complex web and physicians are licensed state by state and you can't practice where you don't have a license. So that has a big effect on telehealth. I'm trying to bring myself and maybe our listeners back to early in the pandemic, think about when New York City was overwhelmed by COVID cases. And you could easily imagine in that situation saying the entire or the the huge portion of the clinical capacity of New York State is being consumed by this onslaught. And in order for people to get routine care, around anything other than COVID, they're not going to be able to get into a doctor's office. They're certainly not going physically, but they aren't even going to be able to get in electronically. But if there's someone who can meet their needs somewhere else in the country, you know, let's let that happen. So I could have imagined that uh, given the geographic concentration of COVID and literally the overwhelming of health systems, which we... Uh, experience so much that that telehealth would just boom, but also interstate telehealth would boom. So let's start looking at the study you published in Health Affairs. 
what were you trying to figure out happened here? What are the outcomes you were looking for? And what are some of the variables that you were taking into account as you did that research? Exactly as you mentioned, that was kind of our suspicion and what we really wanted to look into and see if that did happen. This was not just relaxation of regulatory barriers uh, in a vacuum. It was in the setting of a pandemic. And so we thought, well, this is the first time that we almost get a natural experiment. We've removed all these barriers. What is actually taking place? And so knowing that, we didn't want to look just at the year 2020 with the Medicare data that we had available. We did look at data from 2017 to 2020 to kind of have a few years of data leading up to the pandemic to make sure that there wasn't already an existing trend that was just evolving uh, beyond the March of 2020. So the first thing that we wanted to get a sense of was really just the big picture. And so what does that mean? We wanted to look at out-of-state telehealth, out-of-state in-person care, as well as in-state telehealth and in-state in-person care, and trend that over that three-year period. Um, the next thing we wanted to understand is, you know, how did out-of-state telehealth use, what did that look like comparing 2017 through 2019 to 2020, when all these regulatory changes took place, but also how this varied across states. We figured that if we just looked at nationwide numbers, that might not reflect the individual state-level experience of different folks. We also wanted to look at new patient visits, and we can talk about this a little bit more later on, but there's always been a concern that if licensure was extended to, instead of being a state-by-state state process to a federal process, that larger corporations, larger health systems may essentially take patients from local providers. So we wanted to really get granular in the data and take a look at how many new patient visits were taking place, how many of these were in telehealth, and how many of these were occurring across state lines. and finally looking at the characteristics of the beneficiaries, the Medicare patients themselves who use out-of-state telehealth, and whether there was anything in their demographic data that we had access to that suggested whether some folks were going to use telehealth or out-of-state telehealth more than others. So let's start just with the top line. Uh, what were the trends in telehealth use, in interstate telehealth use, both as a share of visits overall and relative to in-person visits? Yeah, exactly. That's our number one key finding. Um, and, to, and in some degree, we were a little surprised by this. So out-of-state telehealth really made up a small fraction of the total care before, but even after the declaration of the public health emergency. So from 2017 to 2019, out-of-state telehealth comprised only 0.1% of all evaluation and management visits. So this is all care, all Medicare care um, during that time period, and about 8% of all telehealth visits. Um, and if you know, we recall the right after the introduction, this is because it was possible, but it was very restricted, very specific scenarios where these telehealth visits were being allowed across state lines. In 2020, while there was a significant expansion in telehealth use, out-of-state telehealth still only comprised about 0.8%, so less than 1% of all visits that took place that year for Medicare patients, and only about 5% of all telehealth visits. Well, I want to get into a little bit of the detail there as you discussed uh, new patient visits and uh, differences across states. We'll dive into that layer of the data after we take a short break.
And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Juan Andino about interstate telehealth use by Medicare beneficiaries before and after waivers were granted in the COVID-19 pandemic, significantly loosening up uh, provisions that made interstate telehealth possible. Before the break, we got the top line findings, which is that despite dramatic increase in telehealth use overall, interstate telehealth use remained a very small share. Now, when things are small, it's easy to say, well, okay, there's not much there there. But in fact, there is, because as you noted earlier, you were looking at this through a few different lenses to try to figure out what's going on. So um, why don't you, if you don't mind, just give me sort of the second layer of findings in terms of differences by type of patient, differences by type of visit, uh, and maybe then we can get a little bit into some of the state variation as well. Beyond the big picture, when we looked at how out-of-state telehealth was being used, it really seemed to be primarily for continuity of care rather than for new patient evaluations. Um, so, th- so this is certainly a really important finding to directly address some of the concerns that have been raised in the past, but previously we didn't have much data. When we looked at the billing codes between 2017 and 2020, we really found that um, the top 10 billing codes for both in-state and out-of-state telehealth visits, which made up about 75% of all visits total, did not include any new patient evaluations at all. Instead, they included things such, uh, such as established patient visits, audio-only encounters, which were also new due, due to the pandemic, virtual check-ins, and psychotherapy. So these were all very kind of distinct entities that Medicare defines as allowable telehealth services. And another key thing that we found is that during this time period between 2017 and 2020, while there was an increase in overall telehealth utilization, and there's a number of graphs out there that show this, there was not an increase in the volume of new patient visits overall. So it really was kind of highlighting that telehealth, first of all, was not kind of an additive service, but also that people weren't using the changes in regulation for out-of-state care to just look around and shop around for care across state lines. Well, that's really interesting. It goes back to this question of, are we going to disadvantage local providers if we open up the door? Now, admittedly, this was an emergency and people were, we know that overall use of services went down as people were sort of, uh, you know, as we noted, afraid to or unable to leave their homes. Um, I suppose if you're thinking about establishing a relationship with a physician or uh, in the middle of a pandemic, you might think, well, uh, this is a temporary situation. I I don't want to build a relationship with someone at this fancy uh, university academic medical center far from me and then be unable to see them in the future. Uh, So Uh, But that said, it does seem notable that this was really about continuity. Um, Can you say a little more about the differences across states? Because, of course, I live in the D.C. metropolitan area, and I cross jurisdictional lines between Maryland and D.C. and Virginia all the time. So what does interstate telehealth really mean in in a place like where I live? Yeah, that that's a fantastic point, Al. And I'm actually very glad that you said Washington, D.C., because it was uh, one of the unique areas in our study. For most states, actually, out-of-state telehealth made up less than 1% of all outpatient visits in the year 2020. 
However, in several areas, and some of the key, uh, the, the top users of out-of-state telehealth included Washington, D.C., Vermont, and New Hampshire. And so in those places, out-of-state telehealth use ranged from 4 to 9% of all visits, with Washington, D.C. actually being the highest at 9%. So you can definitely imagine that depending on where the state is, the, rur- the rurality of the area, where do folks live? Where do they commute? It might have a significant different impact um, that may vary across geography. Yeah, so it, and that ties back into sort of this continuity point that you were making earlier, which is that in some parts of the country, interstate is sort of the norm. And um, uh, seeing high rates of use there doesn't really imply a change in people's practice patterns. It's just what you kind of get used to. Yeah, and there was certainly a correlation between out-of-state telehealth use for these areas. And actually, when we looked at out-of-state in-person care, they seem to match up very closely. So you're 100% correct. Right. That's all consistent with that story. So I guess the question is, did we gain anything by uh, these emergency regulations? Um, Or is there anything we should be worried about as a result of them? What's your assessment of that? Yeah, I think we, we still learned a lot and are still learning a lot. For example, this is the first study of you know, evaluating interstate telehealth use. And exactly as you said, this was in the middle of the pandemic when there was the most worry, the most concern, where you as a patient might be thinking, well, I don't want to establish a new relationship. What if I have to get labs or imaging and then have to find my way all the way over to this new place across state lines? But I think it, it was still really important to get this sense that even with removing a lot of these Um, restrictions on state licensure, the numbers stayed low. And granted, there's a lot of factors coming into play here. There have been previous uh, routes or avenues for offering care across state lines. So there there are states that have joined what's called the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. Um, I believe about 28 states in Guam are a part of this, and it facilitates physicians obtaining a license in nearby states. So there have been existing regulatory avenues for providing um, interstate care. But I think this this data is going to be really important to think about how do we move things forward? Exactly as you said, there's a lot of there's been a lot of anxiety about the pandemic and a lot of things are still framed and understood by the public as temporary. And so are people really going to take a risk if everything's going to go back to quote unquote normal before uh, 2019? Obviously, we learned a lot about telehealth use overall. Things have skyrocketed. A lot of folks were able to experience it for the first time, become comfortable with the idea. But we really hope that this paper and this data just continues the conversation. Right now, everything related to telehealth is still tied to the public health emergency. And so the moment the public health emergency expires, all of these changes would actually only last for about 151 days because uh, of a a law that was passed in March of this year by President Biden. Um, But you can imagine that, again, this just for providers, patients, everybody involved, uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And so whether we're talking about access to care issues, allowing new patient visits down the road, you know, what is the role of audio-only telehealth and specific to this paper? um, How do we continue to think about interstate telehealth moving forward it just gives us more to think about and more to discuss. If the majority of these visits are for established care, maybe there isn't as much of a concern about larger corporations, larger hospitals taking away patients. But 
that's also very true that the rates were low for most states. So maybe this doesn't necessarily need to be a federal conversation and rather we can rely on state advocacy for the people and the constituents that are being impacted by this the most taking action at their state level. Oh, those are really interesting observations. Uh, I, I do note, of course, this isn't the only work you've done in the field of telehealth. Uh, maybe we could just broaden a little bit out from this paper and you could say a little about some of the other work you've done and how the findings in this paper fit within the context of the findings from other research you've conducted. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up. That's something that I've been very passionate about my entire time, actually, since medical here at medical school here at the University of Michigan. You know, probably the the most relevant study that we've done since the pandemic um, also ties into access to care issues. Uh, as part of the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation, we have an entire group de dedicated to telehealth research. And while telehealth has always offered the promise of improving access to care, uh, truthfully, with a lot of the regulatory barriers in the past, it wasn't always possible. How can you expand access to care if uh, somebody can't see a new patient for a new issue, um, if they don't have an established relationship? How can you, you know, open up access to care if somebody 45 minutes away in Toledo across the border in Ohio still has to drive just past the Michigan-Ohio border to jump on their telehealth visit? Um, so one of the other topics that we have explored during the pandemic is what is the role of audio only or to think about it more simply, just phone visits. And Dr. Julia Chen um, actually led a study here that, that we thought had very important findings that should also be a part of the discussion in telehealth moving forward. It really highlighted that early in the pandemic, also in 2020, patients who were older, African-American, required an interpreter or used Medicaid were more likely to use phone visits during the pandemic than uh, using video visits or a live uh, video experience with their provider. And so, again, a lot of these things that were temporary early on due to concerns about COVID and the spread of COVID have really hopefully uh, shown a spotlight, shown us that, you know, these are all just tools for patients and providers to connect. And so can we continue some of these things moving forward, even beyond the end of the public health emergency? Well, that's uh, really important to add that dimension. And you can't get that from the study that we published, but you need to see it in the context of all of those. As we come to a close, I'd just like to ask you, uh, you mentioned this is an area of interest of yours since you were in medical school. I'd, I'd like to understand how your clinical experience and clinical training affect your approach to uh, this work, what experience you've had on the topic uh, that makes this a uh, passion of yours. I think one of the things that many people who work in medicine, in the hospital, in the clinics uh, can see that medicine can sometimes be slow to change, um, but also as a provider and someone who sees patients day in and day out, I became interested in telehealth because it gave an it gave me an opportunity and other people exploring this area, whether from the research side or from the health policy and advocacy side, to try to have an impact at a grander scale. Um, obviously, the, the work we do day to day is very important, but if something impacts an entire hospital, an entire state, the entire country, that's incredibly important. Um, and so it was really the day to day patient stories, like I mentioned, I, it, it multiple attending faculty that I've worked with, been in their clinics, have told me of the patient who had to drive across a border just to hop on their, you know, video connection, the equivalent of FaceTime, but HIPAA compliant with their provider, because that was just what the rule is. Um, 
And this was even before the pandemic. So, you know, you see the the time and financial impact that healthcare can have on patients. And if you have a tool for facilitating access to care, where many things can be done safely, um, when we know that a physical exam is not needed or a test that needs to be done in the clinic isn't needed, and you can still have an important conversation, review labs, review imaging, talk about steps moving forward, uh, telehealth just seems like such a common sense solution to expand access to care. Well, it's great to have you bring your clinical practice into the health policy issues that we focus on every day at Health Affairs. Um, Such an interesting study and an interesting context. Really appreciate the work that you've done. And Dr. Andino, thank you so much for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thanks, Alan. This is fantastic. And I'm so excited that we get to have our data displayed in Health Affairs. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.